reading this morning from Acts chapter 14 and reading from verse 8. Acts chapter 14, reading from verse 8. Let's hear the word of God. In Lystra, there was a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth. He'd never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking and Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and he called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul was, had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he's not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in the seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. The mission to Lystra started well. There was a lame man, he had been lame from birth there, and he listened to the gospel and he believed it. And Paul looked at him and had this desire to heal him, and so the man got up and jumped for joy, walking around. The story is very similar to the story that we found in Acts chapter 3 where Peter had encountered a man who was similarly lame for the whole of his life and had invited him to get up and to, to walk and he jumped for joy. These two things, these two miracles are to be seen as signs. Miracles are, are not common, the gospel doesn't suggest that they are, but these particular are, are to see as signs that the gospel isn't just about people believing new things, it's actually about whole lives being transformed. 
And as we try to share our, our gospel and mission, it's not just that we preach words and say to people, you know, believe these things and come to church. It's that actually in the power of the gospel, we want to see lives transformed. We want to see people having the wholeness, the fullness of life that God wants for them. That's why we are also concerned with social justice and we're concerned with feeding people and we're concerned with building community because we want to see the gospel transform every aspect of our lives, that people might live thriving, fulfilled lives. What was being invited here was a dramatic change. You see, Lystra was a population that was different than many of the other cities that Paul had been in. There weren't a lot of Jews there. It was a Roman colony. It was a place of pagan worship. In fact, that part of the world is where people were beginning not just to worship all the gods of Greece and Rome, but they were even beginning to worship the emperors as gods in that place. So when Paul invited pagans to become Christians, he was asking for an even more dramatic change in their life than had been true of Jews. He would write later to the Thessalonians, you turned from idols to the living God. What happened next was maybe a little strange. The crowd began to shout and at first Paul and Barnabas didn't know what they were saying. They were speaking in the local language, Laconium, which Paul and Barnabas wouldn't have known. They'd been talking in Greek, which hopefully everybody would have understood. And so they were confused. Then with horror, they realized, maybe through an interpreter, what was going on. The people had seen them as Zeus and Hermes, and they began to get flowers and garlands and offer sacrifices to them in that place. Now this might seem quite strange to us, but the commentators have done a little bit of research here. And one of the things that we find is a Roman poet called Ovid. And po Ovid is writing about 50 years before these events, and he records a local legend from that same area, from the Lystra area. The legend was that Zeus and Hermes, two gods, had come down in disguise and walked among the people, trying to find hospitality. They hadn't found any. Most people had shunned them and thrown them out of town, except one elderly couple, Baucis and Philemon. And so the gods in anger had punished the people of that area. They'd sent a horrific flood, but they had rewarded the two people who offered them hospitality. So perhaps that's what's going on here, most likely. As they begin to recognise in Paul and Barnabas that there is a spiritual power, that there is something of the divine, they interpret that through their own myths and their own legends. And they are trying to get on the right side of these powerful figures that they think are two gods walking among them. And so they call Paul Hermes, because Hermes was the mouthpiece of the gods, the speaker, the messenger, and Barnabas, who was older than Paul, they called Zeus. You see, what's going on here is these people are recognizing the supernatural power of the gospel. But as they recognize that divine power, they are interpreting it through their own pagan superstition and worldview. They actually don't want to change. They don't want to change their thinking. They don't want to change their religion. They don't want to change their temple and their priests. They just want to take this new power and incorporate it into what's already there that they can carry on as before. We actually find this quite a lot in the paganism of the ancient world, that people would use occult magic spells and they would 
say their spells in the name of Zeus and Athena and Hercate and a whole load of gods. And then you'll find in those inscriptions that they'll use the name of Moses because they've heard something about the Jews. And later on, we find the name of Jesus being used as well. They're just taking supernatural things and adding them together into their own pagan worldview. This is a, a huge contrast from where this passage started. Remember the lame man? We were told that he listened and he believed and he had faith and then the power came and his life was transformed. Here was a man who even before the miracle happened was being able to see that this message about Jesus was a message that would change things, would change his thinking, would change his living. Basic to the Christian proclamation is this simple idea and we must never lose track of it. The gospel is an invitation for lives to be changed, thinking to be changed, actions to be changed, love to be transformed, values to be transformed, whole communities to be turned upside down. It's dramatic. Paul knew that. After all, his own life had been turned upside down from being a persecutor of Christians to becoming not just a Christian, but to one who went all over the world being persecuted himself, sharing this good news. But the pagans, perhaps, who became Christians knew it even more. You see, if you were a pagan, it wasn't just that you believed in lots of gods and you might go to a temple occasionally, but actually that paganism infested the whole of your life. You went to the bathhouse and there were the statues of the gods. You went to dine with a friend and there would be prayers to the god, a libation, a pouring out of a little bit of wine to bless the gods. You got involved in politics and there would be oaths before the gods. You went to the sports ground, which people did, and all of that would start with pagan worship. And when you started to become a Christian and, and want to back away from this idolatrous worship, it was going to change your social relations. It was going to change everything that you were involved in. It was a huge ask. It wasn't just saying, well, believe some new things and come to church on Sunday. It was to have your life turned upside down. In fact, the gospel was to transform so many things. If you look back in the history of Europe and you skip forward just 500 years, 300 years even, then the whole shape of Europe would be transformed by the gospel. Slavery would be gone because how can you enslave people that are also Christian brothers and sisters? The gladiator rings would be empty the pagan temples would be illegal and destroyed. A huge change right across the ancient world. Family life was transformed as well. The Romans would quite happily get rid of children that they didn't want at a young age. The Christians didn't have any of that. Abortions fled away. Marriage and divorce became, well, divorce became a lot rarer and life became entirely transformed by the gospel. It's interesting, I was reading a book just last year by a chap called Tom Holland, and he's a historian. He's not a Christian, well, not yet, but he looks at the history of Europe and he, he, he acknowledges not just that the Christian gospel changed the whole of the way that Europe thinks, but actually, even in our secular world, the values that we have, the human rights that people talk about are all based on an understanding 
of who human beings are that comes directly from the Christian tradition. The gospel makes changes. It changes lives, it changes communities, it changes everything. Of course, not everyone wants that change and hence we get this opposition. But I suppose in that there's a challenge for us. First of all, as we begin to share the gospel with people, we need to be open to the fact that some folk won't want those changes in their lives. But there's another question, perhaps a deeper question. Do we want them? Do we just want a religion that we go to and find comforting but actually doesn't change anything? Or do we grasp the enormity that to become a disciple of Jesus Christ is to have the whole of your life dramatically changed and altered? Maybe even in these days, you have a sense of that call on your life. Maybe you're someone who's watching this service who before didn't go to church or it didn't mean much to you. Or maybe you've been far from God and you're sensing at the moment that God is inviting you, transforming you into a different way of thinking and living. If you are, I'd love to hear from you. Pick up the phone and tell me. Um, I find that so encouraging just to hear what God might be saying and doing in your life. But let's get back to our story. Paul and Barnabas realise that they're being worshipped and they are absolutely horrified. They're, they're running out there saying, no, don't, don't offer sacrifices to us. Don't fill us with flowers. You see, the basic thing here is here are two Christians and the last thing they want is to be praised. The last thing they want is for people to be saying, look at them, look how great they are. And that is also basic to who Christians are as well. We don't seek popularity. We don't seek to ingratiate ourselves. We want to do good things that transform the world around us, but we want people to see God and to give him glory as we do that. And so Paul begins to preach to the people and tell them the truth. We're just human beings like you. We make mistakes, we get things wrong. Don't think of us and put us on a pedestal. The church isn't perfect. The church isn't full of people who are special and different and holy. We're just like you. But what we have got is a life transforming message that is offered directly to you to turn from worthless things, that's the idols, to a living God who made heaven and earth and sea. This was to be really transforming for how we think about things. You see, Greeks and Romans looked at the sea and they saw Poseidon and they looked at the heavens and they saw Zeus and they looked at the earth and they had other gods for rivers and streams and everything else. And Paul says, I want to transform your lives by transforming your thinking that one God made all of these things. And so there's an invitation he gives them to turn from the worthless things to this living God, to repent and believe the good news. The gospel always, that invitation to change, not just change our thinking or our philosophy, but to change from seeing the world in a chaotic way to seeing a world where there is only one God. And Paul describes that God, and this is really important in the Bible. He describes him as the living God. He's not just an idea. He's real. He's not just an opinion 
this is very important for us to see in this day. God is not an opinion. He is real and he can be known. He really is there. He actually made this physical world. It gives testimony to who he is. He's actually the God, says Paul, who gives you the sun and the rain and the crops. You're out there sacrificing to Zeus and that spirit and this spirit, trying to keep in with them all so you get these gifts. But you have a father who is giving you these good things and wants to have a relationship with you. God is not an opinion. He's not a set of ideas. He is a real and he is alive and he knows you. We are each, Christian or not Christian, made in the image of God. We are loved by that God. He shares good things on us day after day after day and he wants to know us. Now, of course, Christianity makes intellectual sense when we look at the world full of all its goodness. How can you see good gifts and not acknowledge a good giver? But it's far more than a set of ideas. It's an invitation into a relationship with God who gives meaning and purpose to your life, who calls you to repent and turn from godlessness to him and to live your lives with the fullness and the promises of God. Luke gives us a little summary of what Paul preached there. I'm sure Paul intended to preach far more than Luke summarizes. If they were looking for the divine in human beings, he would have said that, yeah, you'll find something of the divine in human beings. We're all made in the image of God, the God who made us all. But if you want to find the full image of the divine in a human being, look to Jesus Christ, the fullness of God come among us that we might have our lives transformed. But whatever Paul intended to preach that day, it was cut short. His enemies arrived from Iconium and they turned the crowd against him. You'll beware the fickleness of crowds. See if you look to be popular, you'll find very quickly that it can turn round. One minute they're trying to worship Paul and the next minute they're trying to stone him. Ask any politician how popularity works with crowds that change their minds. What happened next was traumatic, so traumatic that it was to leave a mark on Paul for years to come. They took him and they threw stones at him, just like they'd thrown stones at Peter, sorry, at, at, at Stephen earlier. And they left him for dead. Of course, he wasn't actually dead, but they were pretty sure he was. And Paul wrote about those events later on. He wrote to the Corinthians, three times I was beaten and once I was stoned. And he wrote to the Galatians, Galatia, Galatia, Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. As if he's looking at his own body and he's seeing not the marks of crucifixion, but perhaps the scars of the stoning he went through. Paul would go through all sorts of persecutions and shipwrecks and other things, but what happened in Lystra struck with him. There is a cost to living a transformed life and preaching a gospel which invites others to be transformed. As he would write again to the Corinthians, we're cast down, but we're not destroyed. We're knocked out, but we're never, we're, sorry, we're knocked down, but we're never knocked out. And this is really important for us as we think about how the gospel invites us to transformed lives. It also invites us to sacrificial, costly giving. I'm struck how modern Christians are very often 
fairly shallow in what they're willing to do. We so quickly see when we're asked to do things, that's not very convenient. You know, I'd like to be in church at worship. I'd, I'd like to have time to read my Bible, but you know, I've got so little time, I, I can't do that. I, I, I feel witnessing or, or, or telling people about my faith, that's, that's difficult. I do, I, I, do, I do a lot for the church. I've, I've really done my bit. Somebody else should do this. And, and, and so quickly we begin to moan that we are actually getting a hard deal. You know, it's not my thing to do this thing that I'm being asked to do. As if it was Jesus' thing, as if it was Jesus' hobby to sort of go to the cross. The gospel invites us to a fullness of life, a, a life that's transformed, but it also invites us to be willing to sacrifice the life and the comforts that we have for that which matters and is important. The Lystrians wanted to experience divine power in their lives, but they weren't willing to change their minds or their lives or their way of thinking or anything about it. And so often Christians are the same. We want to see the church grow, we want to see the kingdom come, but actually what we're willing to do and to give is fairly limited. Paul had a real heart for what Jesus had done for him, for all that he'd gone through, and for that reason he knew that it was worth going through anything. It was worth putting up with anything. It was worth putting his life on the line if it allowed him to follow Jesus. Now, if we stopped at verse 19, we might say, well, there was Paul faithfully proclaiming the gospel in Lystra. Nobody wanted to hear. Wasn't that a failure? I suppose Paul did brave things, but that's the end of it. But the story doesn't stop there. Let's read what happens next from Acts chapter 14, verse 21. This is after they had left um, Lystra and gone to Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So you notice this, it might have seemed like a disaster in Lystra, but we're told that Paul went back there and he went back to strengthen the disciples. In that church, in that city of Lystra where so many had rejected him, some people had become disciples. They'd seen how costly it was, how you might get stoned or run out of town. But they'd still said, it's worth believing and following this message of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just that there was believers there, there had become disciples there. We have spoke about this word before, it, it means much more than just being a Christian. It means growing, learning, following just like the Twelve had done as they'd been disciples of Jesus for three years, learning all the things that he was teaching and growing in it. Paul went back and taught them. Despite all the hardships, the gospel wasn't to be knocked down. 
despite the fact they were proclaiming a faith that was going to be difficult to follow, the church was still growing. You see, where people start to see something of Christians living in costly ways, life-transforming ways, then for some, they will acknowledge and receive the power of the gospel. The message of this passage is to be steadfast for God, to allow him to transform our lives, that we live in costly ways, that we might proclaim and share that gospel with the community around us. And when we do that, at times it might look like nothing is happening and no one wants to know. But God is also faithful and he will use what we do that lives might be transformed and lives might be changed. I'm going to end with just a practical note. We've reopened our church and we've reopened it for services on Tuesdays, on, thurs on Thursdays and on Saturdays at different times of the day. I wonder, will we come to worship at those times? And I would encourage that if you're physically able and if you're able to do so safely that you would come and join us. It wouldn't be the most convenient time. Perhaps you'd prefer a Sunday. But are we willing to take steps in discipleship that sometimes aren't convenient? That's a minor one. But it perhaps invites us to think about our faith in different ways, in deeper ways, in ways that reshape our week and our lives because the power of God is at work in them. May you this week know not just God's blessing, but that invitation to be transformed and continually transformed by the gospel of the God who is alive. Amen.